Welcome to Family Law Now Live. We appreciate you all of us joining here today to wrap up 2023. I can't believe it's our last presentation today. Wow. It's been a whirlwind. Um, so Good we want to thank everyone for joining us this year and all of our speakers as well for all your contributions, not only over this year, but over the last few years since we've been doing this. We really appreciate it. And to wrap up with our final presentation of the year, uh, we'll be discussing holiday co-parenting tips, tricks, and common disputes. And to share their insights, we have Jonathan Painter, Daniela Jodetzi, and Rick Batika joining Russ on the panel today. Um, so first, I'll let you know what we have on the agenda. So today, they'll be discussing seasonality and family law, the current separation agreement or court order, dispute resolution clause and collaborative practice, Last-minute motions to change enforcement, winter holiday decision-making and parenting time, religion and participation in religious celebrations, voice of the child, the cost of being right, and they'll also be sharing some case law related to, today, to today's topic. And as always, our panelists will reserve some time for Q&As, and they'll do their best to answer as many as they can as time allows throughout the presentation. And now I have the pleasure of letting you know a little bit more about our panel. So as I mentioned, we have Jonathan Painter joining us here today. He is a registered social worker and psychotherapist who works in the family law system, completing parenting plan assessments, voice of the child reports, family mediation, and collaborative family law and private practice. He also provides psychotherapy such as cognitive behavioral therapy, family therapy, and couples counseling for children and adults. Jonathan is on the board of directors of the Ontario Association of Family Mediation, holding the executive position as treasurer of the board and is on the board of the Collaborative Practice Durham Region. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Next, we have Daniela, who is an associate family lawyer at our firm, where she takes pride in guiding clients through the separation and divorce process by listening to their struggles, worries, and needs, and advises them on their legal rights, entitlements, and obligations. Daniela has been practicing family law exclusively since 2007, and prior to joining our firm, she ran her own practice. Daniela always advocates passionately on her client's behalf to ensure that their objectives are met. She is a firm negotiator, trained mediator, and collaborative family lawyer, as well as experienced litigator. Next, we have Rick. Rick is also an associate family lawyer at our firm and brings over 16 years of family law expertise. Rick focuses on all aspects of family and matrimonial law by supporting his clients in resolving matters. He fosters strong relationships with his clients that are built on trust and transparency. Rick collaboratively works with his clients in achieving effective solutions through various dispute resolution mechanisms, such as fi finalizing domestic contracts, through negotiation, mediation, and collaborative law processes, or through the litigious processes of court and arbitration. And last but not least, we have Russell Alexander, who is the founder and senior partner at our firm. With over 25 years of experience, Russell brings a wealth of knowledge and uses his experience with a client-focused approach by creating unique solutions for each of his clients to enable them and their families to move forward with their lives in a compassionate and collaborative manner. So on that note, I will let you take it away, Russ. Thank you uh, for those kind words, Shannon. Really, the dream team you put together for us today. So that's wonderful. Uh, just to our Looking audience. Looking forward to today's discussion. Yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, just for our audience members, we're going to do some poll questions today. Here's the first one that we've got up. The poll is, tell us a little bit about yourself. So we'll give everybody a minute to answer that question. All right, so let's see who our audience is today. And the poll results are family lawyer, 55%, other area, about 10%. Navigating a uh, going through separation, divorce, 7%. Helping a loved one, 5%. Law student joining us. We love it when the law students join us. So thank you for sending in those results. But first, we're going to talk about seasonality and family law. So what are we... What do we need to know here, Rick? Thanks, Russ. <clears throat> Look, seasonality and family law, uh, family lawyers see it all the time, and I guess any family professional sees it all the time. Certain times of the year bring um, more um, activity than others, and uh, we're probably embarking on the um, probably most contentious one in a couple of weeks from now, which is Christmas, uh, and people fighting over parenting time uh, and what's... And, what would be an appropriate schedule and 
And basically, I guess the the general rule is, is that parent time again is always looked through the lens of a of a, the child's best interest. There are no hard and fast rules, and each case will turn on the facts of each case. And and courts will generally look at certain factors if it has to go to court. Um, they look at the existence of a court current court order or separation agreement. What's the age of the child? What are the residency arrangements of the child? Or is it primary or shared? Uh, what's the status quo? Uh, so, and then they're, 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 they're balancing that against the new changes in the legislation, which say that in allocating parenting time, the court has to give effect to the principle that a child should have as much time with, with each parent as consistent with the child's best interest. So every case is really um, uh, dependent on the facts of each case. And, and I think the, the takeaway is, is for parties to, to start having that discussion early on uh, and not wait to the last minute that they have to go to court uh, and to engage as many resources, try to get a family professional on board, a social worker, psychotherapist. They can see what the, if there's problems that are, are, are approaching on the horizon, they need to deal with it before waiting to the last minute. And there's also the AFCCO parenting guidelines. That's a guideline performed uh, by the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts, the Ontario chapter. That's a useful resource in determining what's age appropriate in terms of guidelines. These are guidelines, but it helps open up the discussion. Great stuff. Thank you, Rick. Um, let's go back to our audience and go back and ask another poll. So how should holiday parenting time be divided? So uh, let's see what our audience thinks about that. And while we're getting those results in, let's go to a question that came in. Um, and I'll just throw this out there, whoever wants to answer it. Uh, if one parent hasn't exercised their visits all year, do they have any rights during the holiday season? Right, we always see this, right? There's some parent who's gone AWOL and all of a sudden, uh, they want little Johnny for Christmas morning or whatever the case is. So who wants to take that one? Danielle, did you have your hand up? <laughs> I can, I can mention it's similar yeah. to what Rick was just saying about the best interest of the child, right? And I think Jonathan would probably want to comment further on this given his work, but I think really it comes down to what's in the child's best interest at that point. If there's been such a long you know, period of time that they haven't seen that parent, is it in their best interest to kind of at Christmas time reignite that relationship? It, it may not be in their best interest, depending on the, the facts of the case, depending on what the situation has been. Yeah, I agree. All right. Um, do you want to add to that at all, Jonathan? No, I, I agree. Like the best interest of the children should always be the paramount consideration from for any parent. Um, and um, but also keep in mind that parents may have different views on what is in the children's best interest. So, for example, if a parent's always had Christmas with the kids and the other parent hasn't, that parent is going to think the best interest of the children is to continue having every Christmas. And uh, that, that might lead to some conflict and maybe you need a, a help from a mediator or a lawyer or someone to help uh, resolve that conflict. All right, let's see what our audience is thinking. Dividing parenting time during the uh, December holiday season, the poll results are coming up like magic. Uh, primary parents should decide, 3%, very low turnout. Divide equally between the parents, 51%, uh, but they could argue over the 1% still. Um, what else? Uh, don't let the children decide. Follow traditional schedule, 13%. It's a pretty powerful argument, right? This is the family tradition. Why should we deviate from it? We've got some case law that talks about that that we're going to get to. Um, but there seems to be some merit to that argument. Uh, parenting coordinator should decide if the parents cannot. 5% court decides if um, the parents cannot. You know, pre-pandemic, right? Do you guys remember this? How crazy was last motions day before December 25th? It would be packed, right? The, the hallways would be packed. And my experience, you know, 
different judges would treat it differently. If it's not urgent, get out of my court. Other ones would dive right into the weeds and, and spend an hour. So you really didn't know. You're kind of rolling your dice, I guess, if you go to court last minute. Wouldn't you say, Rick or Daniela? That's exactly it, Russ. It, 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 is, uh, it is somewhat of a rolling of the dice. Because especially there's, a, there's um, an obligation for parties to really seek out alternatives before going to court. And I always like to like to use the example, Russ, is like dialing nine one one for an ambulance when you have a cold, when you can just yeah. go to the walk-in clinic and see if the doctor can help you there. Um, and some judges won't take that. Uh, you know, if you dial the nine one one and you're walking in with a sniffle, yeah, maybe uh, subjecting yourself. To some cost. people do it strategically, right? It's going to be five grand for a motion. We're going to get you into the courtroom steps and make a deal there. Um, so sometimes it's by design. What would what's your experience, Danielle? Yeah, I, exactly that. I remember like maybe about ten years ago now, but I had a, a lawyer serve me on Christmas Eve with an urgent motion for a parent. So I had to go up to Newmarket, and we ended up spending the whole day in a little one of those little office rooms, yeah. even before just negotiating a, a consent order. But it was, you know, I wasn't happy about it. And my client wasn't happy about it. And we ended up settling on what we were already kind of going back and forth with yeah. anyway before the motion was brought. But yeah, it could be a strategy for some lawyers. You're right. Yeah. Like in terms of just. Then you get home late, right? Sometimes traveling in bad weather, stressed out, all the rest yeah. of it. Yeah, I get it. All right. Yeah. So the current separation in court order. Um, Daniel, what should our audience, you know, family members, the public yeah. lawyers be thinking about with respect to this issue? So I guess, yeah, the first step would be, is there a current separation agreement in place? Um, what does it say? Is it silent on the holiday schedule? Um, and Or is there a court order in place? So you have to look at what's in place, if anything. Um, what, like, typically a separation agreement has, you know, the parties have already turned their minds to this, the idea of holiday time in a parenting agreement. Um, so you're gonna have that time possibly, if it's a good agreement, it's already been, like their minds have been turned to it. They've already agreed on, you know, odd year, even year kind of schedule of um, how, to, how to split up the holidays, how it's different from the regular parenting time, et cetera, et cetera. And it is the lawyer's job to bring these issues to the client, but it's ultimately up to the client to decide whether they want to include it in their agreement I've seen clients to say, you know what, I just want to leave it open-ended and we'll, we're amicable, we'll deal with it. But you're amicable until you're no longer amicable and things can happen down the road, even after you sign the agreement, that makes it less amicable. So it's always a good idea to have that in the agreement if you're negotiating the agreement to kind of cover off everything. The more detail, the better. Um, and we have sample clauses that we use as lawyers all the time. Um, you know, typically children get two weeks off from school this time of year combined with three weekends. So it's about 16 to 17 days off. Typically, it goes from either a Thursday or Friday, like the last day of school till the first Monday in January. Now, this year, I believe because of where the holidays fall, it's the second Monday in January where the kids go back on January 8th. So, you know, option one is you take all the days and you divide them in half. Um, and then, you know, alternate who gets the first half of the holiday winter break and who gets the second half of the winter break. Um, it's an easier schedule because there are less transitions between the between the two homes um, and it's at the halfway point. So it's easy. Um, but, you know, it doesn't what that schedule doesn't do is it doesn't account for what's called the Christmas kernel, which is the parties that do celebrate Christmas. Um, they would, you know, those would be the important days for them to split the time with the children. So it's the December 24th, 25th, 26th. Um, so the parties that don't celebrate Christmas, this schedule just splitting the, the days off in half is simple, it's easy, and it works really well. Um, it also allows for, you know, eight to nine days per parent, um, allows for travel, extended visits with grandparents, um, and it's a less chaotic schedule. And then there's option two, where you're nesting these two together. So you divide the holiday in two, but then you carve out the Christmas kernel time if, if the parties do celebrate Christmas. Um, so you're going to share equally 
um, one half of the holidays, and then, you know, one parent gets the 24th to the morning of the 25th, and then the other parent, and there's a transition of the 25th to the 26th for the other, the other family. So um, that kind of becomes a little more difficult uh, because the way it, it, the way that the holidays typically fall, one party could maybe get substantially more time with the children than the other party. Um, there's more transitions, which is a lot more back and forth. Um, and, you know, usually it's just not exactly perfect and fair for each party. So, you know, that's kind of the way it could, it could be divided in those different ways. Um, but there are other schedules that you can do. You can do like a week on, week off. Um, you can alternate the Christmas holiday for odd years versus even years for each parent so that they get uninterrupted time at Christmas every other year. That's an option as well. There's also the uh, sandwich approach. Uh, that's what I call. The middle is the meat and the outside's the bread. So you would have one parent have the kids from after school until Christmas day at say noon or 2 p.m. Yeah. or something like that. And then the other parent has the children for seven days. And then on uh, New Year's day or New Year's Eve, I can't remember exactly where the seven day falls, the other parent gets the kids back. Um, so one parent has the bread on the outside and the other parent has the meat on the inside. I guess, I guess my tip would be try to make it as detailed as possible, right? So if there is a dispute, it's pretty clear what the agreement says. Because a lot, a lot of these agreements we see says Christmas is to be divided equally. That's it. Yeah. Go to court, figure it out, right? That doesn't help families when, you know, what does that mean? You know, it, exactly. There's so many different scenarios. But we have some great questions coming in. We're going to get to them in a moment. Please keep sending us your questions. They're excellent. Uh, but let's talk about dispute resolution clauses and the collaborative practice. Separation agreements, court orders, usually have a dispute um, resolution mechanism. But what should we be looking for here, Jonathan? What are what are our takeaways? So I would I would very strongly recommend that no matter how well the parents get to get along with each other now, you always have a dispute resolution clause in whatever agreement that you have and that it specifies what you do in the event that you can't agree on something. Um, so there's a range of options and um, court's the worst option. So uh, that that's why we include an alternative dispute resolution clause. So you don't have to go to court. So on the uh, more agreeable side of the spectrum, you would have either collaborative family law where you get your collaborative team involved to help you resolve um, the, the dispute about Christmas or, you know, do family mediation with a mediator to help you resolve it. Um, and then um, as you move further on to this, uh, over to the spectrum of not making the decision yourself, but having someone else decide, you could have a parenting coordinator, for example, make that decision. Um, and generally, if you and your ex get along well, then you can leave uh, your agreement a little looser and say, yeah, we'll figure it out at Christmas. That's how uh, you know a lot of uh, parents who get along will do it and then they'll just kind of set the schedule every year. But it's good to have something specific in your agreement to fall back on if that uh, falls through. Um, so like uh, Daniela said, you want, you want to have an agreement that's as specific as possible about Christmas, what are the pickup and drop off times precisely? And if you want to be flexible about it and adjust the schedule year by year, that's great. But if you can't, if you're in a lot of conflict and you can't get along with your ex, then that specificity will really help you in uh, a, a pinch when, when things uh, get a little tense because you have the agreement to fall back on. And this is a blind spot for a lot of families and a lot of lawyers, right? First thing you do, look at the agreement. What does it say about dispute resolution? You rush off the motion court and the judge reads the agreement. It says parties will mediate before going to court. Guess what? You're going to get kicked out of court. The judge isn't going to hear you. And Christmas is going to be done. Uh, I think, I too, like generally it should be said that judges don't really like 
emergency motions around Christmas. It makes them very grumpy and they don't like it when parents fight about, an, uh, you know, a family holiday like Christmas that's could really be all about the kids. Um, and, yeah. and you know, you might get a bit of a backlash if you go to court arguing about this. So better to have a dispute resolution clause that covers what to do in the event of a disagreement rather than having to go to court. It may be just me, but I, I'm always seeing judges kick people out of court because they didn't follow the, the the specific dispute resolution clauses. Rick Daniela, is up in your experience too? That's exactly it, Russ. They first look at the dispute resolution clause if there is one, and then they usually hold the parties to it. Yeah. You too, Danielle, I assume. Yeah, like especially right now with jurisdictions like in Brampton, for example, like it's really hard to get court dates. They're so far out. Um, you know, they're, you know, they're probably need more judges there. They don't have enough to deal with all these family law issues. And I find that if you go there without even talking to the other lawyer on the other side or just trying to, you know, yeah. coming out in guns a blazing. They're not going to be happy. And if there's a if there's a mediation clause, like they often refer you to the mediation that's associated with the court. If there's no domestic violence or anything like that, they can resolve it. So if you come there just ready to litigate without having to take these, like looking at the agreement, dealing with any ABR clauses in the agreement, then they're not going to be happy. They're they're right. just it's just not a good look. Now, Jonathan, I kind of smiled when you made this comment. I just want to flesh out the details. You said court is the worst option. <laughs> I think I know why, but tell me in your own words, why is that the worst option? Well, I mean, first of all, you're going to be dealing with a grumpy judge because they don't want to hear that parents are fighting over something like uh, an important family holiday. Second of all, it's very expensive. You know, if you want to make a motion to change this Christmas schedule, you know, you're looking at thousands of dollars and you may not get the outcome that you want. Um, and it's slow, right? Like uh, a court is a very slow process. It takes a long time to work all things out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I've seen lots of court orders where, you know, they don't include anything about Christmas. Um, and so it, you, you may not get a, a useful outcome in the end anyway. So uh, I really recommend that, that people uh, focus more on trying to resolve it outside of court. And there are so many good options these days. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, collaborative family law, family mediation, if there's a lot of high conflict parenting coordination, like that's where you hire like your own decision maker uh, to make decisions about things like uh, Christmas or New Year's or whatever. Um, and, uh, and, and that will be a far more efficient, far less stressful, far less expensive process uh, than going to court. And it's stressful. Yeah, definitely. So we've got another poll question up for our audience. When a parent has taken self-help measures and created a new status quo, who should be allowed to choose the holiday schedule? Uh, you know, this, this is a tough question, right? It depends how, I guess it depends on the recency of the self-help, but let's see what our audience is thinking. Next, we're going to go, after we get these results, Rick, we're going to go to you and last minute motions to change. And enforcement, but I want to tie that into a question that came in. Maybe you can answer it when you start. Uh, the question is, is a, if a parent is not following a temporary order regarding holiday parenting time, what do you do? Ask the police for enforcement. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Poll results, um, new status quo, default to, default to the provisions of the current separation or court order, 84% is what our audience thinks. However, you know, sometimes we have these orders and people haven't followed them for five, 10 years, and now all of a sudden a parent wants to enforce it. Um, could be a, a bit of a tough situation for a family. But last minute motions, Rick, um, walk us through this. What should our audience, uh, what does our audience need to know? Sorry, Thank you, for those who don't, Okay. For those who don't heed the advice of uh, Daniela and uh, Jonathan, uh, and you have to go to court, you have to show urgency. And so what's considered urgency is defined under the family of our rules. And there's a famous case of Rosen, which basically sets out that urgency has to uh, is established in accordance with the jurisprudence, and it includes abduction, threats of harm, and dire financial circumstances. So it's a very high threshold. Um, 
and, and, and really what that case stands for is that before you run off the court, the first step is you need to make an inquiry with the court, uh, the jurisdiction, the court that's dealing with the matter as to when the case conference dates are available. If there is, then you should be going to a case conference. Um, and immediately after that, uh, inquiring after the case conference date availability is to engage in settlement discussions for an interim resolution, even if it's not the most favorable solution in the circumstances, but it gets you to the case conference, you're expected to go in that route. Um, and uh, if, you, if you don't follow the first two steps, it's hard to imagine how urgency can be established is basically what that court, that decision is saying. Um, so what, what what the takeaway is, and that there's a case of Coer versus Singh. I, and for those who are interested in looking into this a little bit more, the um, citation is 2023 ONSC 2116. This is available on Canley. And, 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 and really what the court in that decision is reinforcing the Rosen case and saying a moving party must make genuine efforts to try to settle the matter before bringing their motion. And Resolution efforts may only be bypassed where there's an immediate and specific risk of serious harm to the child. So you have to kind of identify objectively where the, if there's an immediate and specific risk to the child in order to justify the bringing of an urgent motion. And and the, that that decision also explains that what's the rationale? Well, the, the judge in that decision says problem solving takes precedence over family law litigation. Uh, because it, it increases the potential for reasonable and affordable outcomes exponentially. And when, when, when it becomes a race of the courthouse, then the potential for reasonable and affordable outcomes basically plummets. All right, let's um, say- I want to address- Yeah, sorry? go ahead, go ahead, Rick. I was going to address that question that was yeah. in the Q&A. Yeah. Um, basically for uh, police enforcement, it's not, it's not recommended. Uh, and likely, even if there's an order, usually judges aren't putting enforcement orders by the police. Uh, police are less likely to enforce. If it's a family law matter, they're going to attend, and they'll basically say, take your matter to a court. Uh, they're not going to enforce um, if someone isn't following the parenting time schedule. Unfortunately, it does get to that point, and I, get, I think there's certain language you want to put in the court order if the judge is going to order that, right? That's right. Like direct a certain district right. or well, I guess unit. if you're you're yeah, if, if you're in Toronto, you'll basically say an order direct in Toronto Police Service right. or any other service having jurisdiction over the matter to enforce yeah. and then you specify the specificities. Hopefully it doesn't get to that. Another follow-up question from the same audience member. Uh, they use language of restitution, but I think the question is if the access is missed. I, I assume there's some makeup time or you, you adjust for it later on, right? Sometimes that's the case. Uh, not always the case. The, if you miss it, you miss it. Um, if there, if, it, if an agreement or a court order provides for makeup time, then that, that would follow. Okay. So winter decision, winter holiday decision-making and parenting time. Um, so who's making the decisions here, Danielle? What should we be considering? So if we if we want to go back there, we want to think about winter of 2020. Um, it was a very chaotic time in family law, if we remember. We all want to forget it, but <laughs> there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, yeah. There was still social distancing, no travel, you know, um, the COVID testing and all of that. And parties were really unsure about how to handle the winter break, the winter holidays. For a few, um, for a few years, right? We had... yeah. Big yeah, questions then we had about different whether you should be taking your kid yeah. to Florida or on a winter holiday. You know, what are the conditions down there? That lingered for three, yeah. four years, and it's still kind of yeah, there. yeah, it is. I mean, COVID is still there. It's just that we don't have the restrictions like we did, you know, for those three years that were really difficult, and it made you know kids traveling to two different households very difficult, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of you know, some people were living with, um, there's, you know, multiple generations in one home where there's elderly people living there, like grandparents living in one household, so they didn't want to expose them, and all of that that was going on, and I know it's, you know, it's hopefully going to become a, a more distant memory, but it's still within our memory because it hasn't been that long, 
Um, but, you know, lawyers and clients, they had, we had to get creative during that time. It was harder to do these multiple transitions. Um, and we wanted to keep the transitions from each household as minimal as possible to avoid the spread of COVID. Um, so, you know, if there was no court order or agreement, plus like on top of that, the courts were backlogged. They were trying to, you know, get into, um, you know, more electronic hearings and te from teleconference to Zoom. So all of that, you know, kind of created a different, a creative way of, of dealing with the celebration of the Christmas holidays. So we started to see a trend where people didn't have as many transitions. They did, you know, one week, uh, you celebrated two Christmases, essentially. The first week of Christmas break, it was with one side of the family. And then the next week, when there's some time has passed and there's maybe nobody yet with, you know, COVID symptoms, then they would celebrate, you know, Christmas on the other side of the family, the other parent's family. So, um, of course, this was easier when there's older, older children. You know, Santa wasn't necessarily coming anymore, so there was time to just disconnect from work and to be with family, um, and of course, double the presents for some children. Uh, so, for some families, that worked really well, and um, we kind of, we have some clients that want to keep a more simple version of the holidays since then. Um, and then for others, it didn't work so well. So, uh, if one person got Christmas the previous year, then you know a judge would automatically order the Christmas for the other parents the following year, just to keep it simple. Because it was just such a complicated time in our lives to navigate these type of issues for various reasons. Um, I think we're going to go to a poll now, right? Russ, yeah. I think. Let's thank you. Let's see what our audience is thinking. Um, and this is always a tough one. Should grandparents have carved out time? during the winter holidays. And I'm just thinking, you know, one of our team members is now a grandparent. The grandchild is the love of her life. Uh, I'm thinking about my relationship with my grandparents. It was always a really kind of special relationship. Um, unfortunately, with separating families, sometimes the extended family gets um, less time with the children. So let's see what our audience thinks. And then we're gonna talk about grandparent time because it is a hot issue in family law. So 41% yes, 21% no, uh, not during the three-day kernel, 10%, other 28%, sort of fairly variety of responses. Um, Daniela, what do we do about grandparents? Well, I have to say, you know, grand, I mean, my grandparents were important to me. I see my parents with my kids. I feel like grandparents love their grandchildren maybe 20% more than their own children. And it's, there's more <laughs> gifts. There's more gifts, right? More gifts are spoiled. It's you very know, precise. Exactly 20%. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I feel like, you know, when, when I walk in the room with my kids and my parents just blow right by me and go hug my children, yeah. I'm like, okay, I get it. But anyway... <laughs> Grandparents can play an important role in children's lives, but this is maybe, definitely- Maybe you can have a session with Jonathan to help you work through- uh, Yeah. Your, your <laughs> Just give me a call, Daniela. Set well, something up. Sure. Turning this sure. into an open therapy session, this program. But... Yeah, there we go. We're going to just switch it over right now. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, all joking aside, this is a newer area of the law that we're starting to see more and more. Um because there are grandparents that are very involved in their grandchildren's lives. And, you know, when separation happens, they still want to be just as involved. Um, so, you know, they want to carve out vacation time with their grandchildren. So um, a very interesting case that was argued by one of my colleagues where parties separated in Canada and then mom um, subsequently lost parenting time with the child and her parents and parents and grandparents wanted decision-making and parenting time with that child. Um, but dad also wanted uh, grandparent, sorry, dad also wanted decision-making and parenting time, but because of the separation, he was forced to go back to the U.S. Uh, where he lived prior to where the, par where the parties were in a relationship. So, um, you know, a very lengthy motion had to go uh, before a judge and then a trial and the issues of parenting and decision-making between the grandparents and the biological dad. Um, so this, these type of cases are gonna be a very fact-driven analysis of, you know, what's, you know, 
best interest of the, best interest of the child, of course. And then, you know, what has been the standing relationship between the child and the grandparents? That's always, you know, are they a very close, you know, are they closely connected? Do they see each other frequently? All of that is going to be factored into the decision on this. Um, so really going back to the poll that we just had, it really just depends. It depends on the, the, the particular situation that that family has and how involved. I mean, you have, you, it runs the gamut. You have some grandparents that are like, you know, taking children to their extracurriculars and that are caring for them after school. Um, so, and then you have parents that grandparents that are not as involved. So it really depends on that particular family and what the standing relationship has been and what is in the best interest of the children. Excellent. Let's go back to our audience, see what our audience thinks. So next poll question, should courts create a standard holiday schedule that all parties in joint decision and parenting time regime should follow? This is kind of interesting. Um, let's see what our audience thinks. Uh, and, um, you know, that, if you think it through, if you knew you're going to go to court, this is what the judge was going to order every time. It would provide some certainty, right, to the litigants and the lawyers, because like you're saying, it all depends. Every family is different, but maybe it's not appropriate because every family is different, right? You need that discretion. So it's kind of an interesting discussion, but let's see what our audience is thinking um, and get our poll results up here. And thank you, everybody, for participating. Yes, 11%. No, 34%. It depends. Well, that sounds like a lawyer's answer, 32%. Interesting idea. Let's hear more about it. 24%. Well, religion and participation in religious ceremonies. We're going to transition to that. Rick, can you take this one for us? Yes, thanks, Russ. So religion and religious upbringing, um, it's usually a custodial or parental decision-making responsibility. What happens in situations where uh, two parents are of different faiths? or uh, they may have been the same faith originally, but let's say one parent decides to convert to another religion. So what what happens in those circumstances? And obviously this issue has been before the court previously and the court's position on this, look, this is not a, a war of religions I'm trying to figure out um, which religion is correct or which religious beliefs are correct. Uh, this is kind of looking at it again from the best interest of the child. And, um, in joint custody situations, or even in situations where one parent has sole decision-making uh, responsibility over relig religious upbringing, uh, that parent from exposing uh, um, his or her views to their children. Uh, and so unless absent, unless there's compelling evidence to show that the exposure of the, those religious beliefs would be harmful to the child, um, generally a court will allow that the children be exposed to, to both religious upbringings. And uh, there's a decision uh, that goes back. It's a divisional court decision, which is hockey versus hockey. And it's a 1989 Kenley 4299. That's the citation. And that's basically the takeaway. The court in that case basically said that in the absence of compelling ev evidence, the sharing of religious beliefs and practices by the axis parent with a child or that the exposure of two religions is contrary to the best interest of the child. Uh, the Divorce Act must be interpreted in a way that's compatible to the fulfillment of the constitutional rights, including the freedom of religion of the Axis parent. So there, the undertone of the guests is basically each parent has a constitutional right to expose their child uh, uh, to their own religious views, uh, absent if those religious exposure is is against the child's best interest great stuff so let's move next into the voice of the child uh this has been the flavor of the day for the last few years we're hearing lots of courts talk about voice of the child how does that tie into holiday um holiday time or the december holiday break jonathan well um you know it's really really important as i mentioned before to focus on what's in the best interests of the children. And, you know, sometimes parents will disagree on what that looks like, uh, but generally, um, you know, uh, you wanna bring the child's voice into the process, whether you're in court or in collaborative 
or in family mediation. Um, so there's a variety of ways to do that. If the child is pre-verbal, so they're infants and they're not really talking much, um, then that might be looking at their developmental age and stage of development. Uh, it might be looking at their behavior, like are they uh, having difficulty transitioning between homes? And maybe that's a consideration for the holiday schedule. Uh, when kids are older, when they start getting verbal, then um, more and more um, they can actually tell you what, what they want to see happen. Um, and, you know, it's always challenging when parents have differing religious beliefs and when they're opposing. So, for example, if one uh, parent uh, is Jehovah's Witness and the other parent is um, some other type of Christian where they do celebrate Christmas, uh, that can be really a challenging um, area of conflict. Um, and so sometimes it can help to actually get someone like myself or another mental health professional who's trained in working with kids and interviewing them and, and bringing out their voice into the process and helping the parents understand what uh, the child's views and preferences are. Because maybe there are really important traditions that they want to keep going. Maybe uh, it's really important that they uh, celebrate Christmas with both parents. Um, and, um, you know, parents can, can um, uh, be creative in how, um, how Santa visits both homes, for example, uh, and, and talking to the kids and bringing their voice into the process can really help resolve a lot of conflict and keep the focus on the children. Because remember, the most important thing is that the children are happy over the Christmas holidays. Uh, and that can happen in a variety of ways. There's not just one way to keep those kids happy. There's lots of ways. So it could be, you know, exchange on Christmas Day. It could be exchange on Boxing Day. Um, but you want to ensure that the children, uh, you know, except in extreme cases, you want to make sure uh, that the children uh, get to see both sides of their family uh, over the holidays. Um, and, and someone asked a question about police enforceability of these orders. And I, I recommend against that, except, except in very extreme cases, because think of things from the point of view of the voice of the child. If you're you know enjoying opening presents at your mom's house and the police show up and basically arrest you and take you to dad's house, that's not gonna be very uh, fun for the kids. Uh, you know, and kids, when they're little, they grow up thinking that, you know, police are there to enforce the law and to arrest bad guys. And if they're arresting the kids, they might think, well, maybe I'm the bad guy and that's why I'm being taken out of my mom's home. Um, so generally I recommend against police enforceability. I'm often asked by parents uh, to put that in agreements uh, and I, I never have because um, I, I just think it's really, really terrible. Uh, a really terrible message to send to the kids that you know we can't resolve our own issues so we have to involve the police and, uh, you know, we don't really care about your feelings. We just think it's right for you to be with me at this time. And if you're not, then, uh, you know, I want the police to get involved. Uh, I, I hope that parents can, you know, be more mature than that and recognize that, you know, even if, even if this Christmas doesn't go the way that you want it, uh, as long as the kids get a chance to see both um uh, families, that's that's the most important thing. So uh, always focus on the child and their best interests. And if they're old enough, usually by the time they're nine or 10, they're old enough to start uh, participating in a voice of the child process. Um, and again, you know, back to what uh, was said earlier, you want to make sure that that uh, is done early, like maybe October, November, instead of leaving it to the last minute. Because uh, that can be really stressful for everybody just before Christmas. Yeah, you know, involving the police really should be the last step, if, if at all. I agree. Only That's... if there's like very severe family yeah. violence issues or like Rick said earlier, if there's a risk of abduction. Uh, other than that, I don't really see a role for the police in these kinds of situations. Right. And that ties us into our next topic, the cost of being right. And I tell this to my clients all the time, you know, technically they're probably correct and a judge would enforce the order, would uh, give them the result they wanna seek. But you wanna think, what's that gonna cost, right? Not, 
well, it's going to cost money. If you're using a lawyer, you're going to be at a few thousand bucks at least, probably. Uh, so you got your legal fees, this best interest of the child. This is your discussion you just had, Jonathan, right? You're cranking up the temperature. The kids are smart. They know when mom and dad aren't getting along. Um, and so there's an emotional cost to the child. And then there's the cost to yourself, right? A lot of these parents have sleepless nights, stressed air, usually resort to some kind of, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever they're, whatever they can do to alleviate the pain. And so you're creating this fracture in this relationship that the child's probably going to remember the Christmas that the police showed up or mom and dad fought for the full two weeks. Uh, so there's a real, you want to weigh the cost of being right and actually enforcing the agreement as opposed to some of these other tools that everybody suggested today. You know, you have your dispute resolution clause, third party can help like Jonathan uh, mediate it. There's collaborative practice. Uh, two lawyers can work at a resolution. Hopefully they would. I think the lawyers would probably get chastised going to court to argue these things. The judges expects us as officers of the court to resolve these disputes. Court's sort of the, the last step. But uh, that's sort of my take on the cost of being right. But Rick, Daniela, you want to jump in here in terms of what you think of uh, this idea? I agree. Like the, the part about calling the police and the kids being exposed to that, I, I can't stress enough. Like the, you know, the comments that have been made by, by Jonathan and us both, it's so important. That is so emotionally damaging to a child to have that kind of experience. Um, it doesn't matter what time of year it's just it's so um unhealthy and yeah that only should be done if there's an extreme situation uh, I, I just can't stress that enough because i think a lot of people it's also a waste of police resources yeah um, which you know they they need to be dealing with other things they have bigger fish to fry so to speak so you know, I think that's really a big takeaway from this is that, you know, involving the police for those type of things is really not in the child's best interest. It's so damaging for a child to see that, to see how that all plays out. And then they have that lasting memory that will, yeah. you know, stay with them, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, I, this is unrelated to holiday access. I had an opposing lawyer say they're going to call in an Amber Alert if the child's not delivered. I go on the Amber Alert, here's the child's address, here's where they're located, here's the phone number. If you call on an Amber Alert for something like this, it would really be an abusive process. Like, But that's sort of the mindset, even professionals take, right? Rick, what's your take on this cost of being right? Uh, well, I agree I agree with Daniel and Jonathan. Like, the, involving the police is such a heavy-handed approach, um, and uh, unless in the extreme circumstances that it's warranted, um, it, 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 it it's hard to conceive just as a, yeah. a regular par for the course that the police need to be involved and, but and we see this in other other situations where if parents want to pick up a, a neutral location sometimes we've seen it where s someone may suggest let's use the police station as a drop-off spot but i found that a lot of judges are against that using even a police station to do a, a drop-off because a police station is associated with the, yeah. you know, that's where criminals are, are arrested. They're going there. And why would you draw Why would you do an exchange location at a police station? It, it just doesn't make sense. That's a situation that really, really warrants it. Yeah, I agree. All right. So let's also, get Also, you know, can I just add one more thing, Russ? Please, Getting please, back get to what you there. said about the cost of court. Uh, the cost is also your relationship with your ex. And, and, you know, uh, going to court uh, is or calling the police on them ruins that relationship, that co-parenting relationship, um, whereas, you know, things like collaborative family law and family mediation aim to preserve that relationship. So an, another great reason to stay out of court or not call the police. Well, judges look at that, too, right? When they, you know, day five of a custody, uh, we used to call it custody, but, you know, parenting time trial. Um they're thinking what parent's going to foster the child's relationship with the other parent. And if your client's the one phoning the police and CAS and everything else, you're likely not going to, that child, that parent's not going to get uh, the order that they want. They're going to say, you, you can't facilitate that relationship. So you want to be mindful. Uh, the, the judges look at these previous incidents of police calls, CAS calls, 
false complaints and it could affect your credibility. Let's get into the case law. We've got maybe five cases here that we're going to go through quickly, and then we're going to um, get into some Q&A. So keep your Q&A coming in. Thank you very much. I'm going to take the first case. It's uh, Mitchell and Joy. And um, so this is, this is we talked about this. The, the separation agreement said the holidays are to be divided equally. It doesn't say how. Um, and so the the takeaway from this case is you want to provide a reasonable amount of time and consult with the other parent as early as possible. And the, the judge said you cannot create or manufacture your own delay uh, by not commencing the proceedings sooner. So unless you start talking about this in October or November, uh, if you simply bring it to your lawyer's office on December 20th and say, bring me a motion, that's not urgent. That's you're not. That's you not following through on this diligently. So that's the takeaway of that case. Very important to keep in mind if your client's asking you to go to motions court in the next few days. Uh, next, we're going to turn to Young v. Young. So that's Mitchell v. Joy, 2015, OMSC 4975. We'll include links to these in the show notes at the end of the program. But Young v. Young, this is, I think, your choice, Rick. Yes, this is a... Supreme Court of Canada decision, and for those who enjoy a lengthy read, any Supreme Court of Canada decision is your place to go. And uh, <laughs> a little nighttime reading, exactly for sure. <laughs> you get to sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Very, very quickly. <laughs> but uh, basically, this case basically sends, and I we touch upon this again with religious views and exposure to different uh, religious. Um, uh, views or backgrounds between two parents. Uh, this was a case where Miss Young was brought up in an Anglican church. Um, uh, although she she was brought up uh, in the United Church, there um, it didn't really play religion didn't really play a huge role in Miss Young's life. Uh, Mister Young converted to a Jehovah's Witness uh, two years prior to separation. Let's fast forward a bit. Uh, they separated. Mr. Young wanted to expose his children to the Jehovah's Witness faith. Uh, there was some backlash from the elder two daughters. The case went to trial. The trial judge basically granted sole custody at that time to Miss Young, access to Mr. Young, the father. And the trial judge went even further to restrict his access by prohibiting him from making an order at trial not to allow him to uh, take the children any religious services uh, with respect to Jehovah's Witness religion. And he, he couldn't even expose his children to any discussions without mom's consent um, and so oh, further restrictions. It went through the appeal process and basically the Supreme Court of Canada took the position I mentioned earlier. Uh, look, unless there's absent harm, uh, you can't. One parent doesn't have the right to to expose to restrict the uh, exposure of the other parents' religion to their children, and basically the Supreme Court in that case basically said that harm is basically a substantial risk to the child's psych, uh, physical, psychological, or moral well-being, and that's right. the takeaway. So the citations will be in the show notes at the end of the program. Yeah, I don't know if I'm saying this one. Yell and Scarborough, one minute or less here, Rick. What do we need to know from this case? Again, this is just a, a quick takeaway. This is a um, uh, parent brought an urgent motion before the court. It was a dad. Um, mom was was basically putting to him to, you know, take this access. You need to sign off on this consent order or I'm not giving you the kids. At the same time, mom was moving to Halifax to uh, meet with her new partner. Uh, judge basically said, look, this isn't an urgent motion with respect to the restriction of access, but the court did say that the uh, potential move to Halifax was was considered urgent and allowed it on that basis. And the court just went through different factors of what to include mm -hmm. before bringing an urgent motion, get early case conference dates, look at the local practices, you know, do they have early case conferences or uh, early judicial inter intervention? Can the parties go to mediation? Um, can they negotiate um, an interim reasonable solution? Um, and then kind of went through it. Yeah. And uh, one more, then we're going to bring Shannon back to some Q&A. Then we're going to be at the top of the hour. I can't believe how quick an hour goes by. 
Elkin and Hall v. Hall. This is um, this is a really good case to keep in the back of your pocket. So the mother objected to the disruption or variation from the traditional um, Christmas activities. And this is what lawyers hear all the time. You know, there's always been with this parent or that parent. Uh, the court in this case admitted um, it's not in the best interest of the children to continue with previous family traditions with one parent to the exclusion of the other, as opposed to developing new traditions. Past family traditions are important, but not binding. So there's your, there's your, keep that case. You know, you've got one of these parents that you're working with, and I would even give it to the other parent, say, you know, this isn't going to go well for you. Let's work out a new tradition that's going to work for both families. But Q&A time. Thank you, guys. That, that was great information. Shannon's back live again. Welcome back, Shannon. Thank you. And thank you, Daniela, Rick, and Jonathan, for sharing all your insights with um, the audience and sharing the panel with Russ today. Um, so we do have a few more minutes. Um, so we're going to try and get in a few questions before we log off here. So the first one we have from the audience is, what are the most likely issues with separated couples still living together under the same roof and celebrating holidays? How would you manage that? Right. That's a tough one. Jonathan, they're still together, but don't like each other anymore. They're going their separate ways. What do you do with the kids? If it's possible, ideally, you would still celebrate Christmas together for the kids, yeah. particularly if the kids are little and they're not really aware of the complex relationship issues. It might be a little different if the kids are teenagers and they kind of know what's going on with mom and dad. If that's not possible, then maybe you could do a nesting thing where one parent has the kids during this period of time, celebrates their Christmas with the kids, and then leaves, and the other parent comes in and has their Christmas time with the kids. Uh, and that way, you know, the kids get to spend uh, time with both parents uh, over that important day. Um, and, um, you know, both parents, you know, get some time with the kids. Um, but very important to remember that, um, you know, you might have to disrupt things this year um, and then next year focus on making it uh, more of a, of a tradition in terms of, you know, what you do at your home versus what the other parent does at their home. So I, I would recommend that um, uh, you get a family mediator or a mental health professional who's knowledgeable about family law issues to help you navigate that complicated situation. I see a lot of family parents, they keep their game face on, right? And they get through the Christmas holiday and tough it out. And then when they come see us, usually first week in January, is, you know, sort of a bump. They say, well, I decided we're going to separate in December, but I wanted to get the kids through one more Christmas before everything blew yeah. up. Happens so often. Yeah, that's quite common. Do we have time for one more, Shannon, or is that it? Uh, one more. Uh, and thank you, Jonathan. And so next we have if one spouse does not want me taking the kids to see Santa this year, does do they have the right to stop me? Daniela, no Santa? Can't go see Santa. I don't think so. <laughs> the child wants to see Santa, let them see Santa. <laughs> These are actually questions we get though, right? It's sad. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I just think you have to really put the, the what the kids the kids would enjoy in their best right. interest. And I don't think it's something that's so damaging uh, to see Santa, but maybe that's just my own skewed view of things. But uh, I say, why not? You see some really... of these kids at the mall, they're freaked out, right? The, the yeah. Santa's scaring the crap out of them. But Rick, what's your take on going to see Santa? Well, I I, I guess the takeaway is, I mean, if, if the kids were seeing Santa in the previous years, what's really changed now? Why why, right. is suddenly, <laughs> why is Santa suddenly such the bad guy, so to speak? Um, I agree with Daniela. Like, I don't see any harm unless there's some, some harm that's associated with visiting Santa. It's yeah. I, I fail to see how... Now that's not in the child's best interest, especially if the child wants to see Santa. Let's bring this sleigh ride into the station, Shannon. What do you think? 
Yeah, it sounds good. Um, so I just want to thank all of our speakers again. Thank you so much for joining the panel today. Thank you to our audience members for all of your participation. As Russ mentioned, we will be following up with an email tomorrow so you can get references to those cases that were mentioned throughout. Um, and yeah, we just want to thank everyone for joining us not only today, but throughout uh, the year. And we're looking forward to seeing you in 2024. 2024, sorry, I'm like, I'm not even used to saying it yet. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing everyone next year. And we actually have um, Jonathan who will be returning for a presentation on mental health and wellness uh, for clients and lawyers on January 10th. So very much looking forward to having you back as well, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you to our audience. Have a great holiday season. We'll see everybody in the new year. Bye.